Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is Jennifer Ford Smith, who is the Director of Product Management and Marketing at Johns Manville. Johns Manville has 43 manufacturing facilities throughout the world and manufactures insulation, roofing materials, and engineered products. Jennifer, thanks for coming on the show. Yes, absolutely. So before we begin, can you tell me a great childhood memory you have? Well, I have, I have plenty of childhood great <laughs> memories. I, I'm the youngest of five kids, and I wouldn't change that for the world. I enjoyed being a part of a large family, and my whole family, I'm fourth generation Colorado. So my family obviously is all still in the Denver area, so I get to enjoy them. Family is very important to me. Um, and I think some of my, my best times were before my older siblings were out of the house ah. and I was playing college softball. Oh, when we were a bit younger, we would spend a lot of time exploring the, the Colorado mountains. So I enjoyed that time with my family, whether it be in, you know, I had an uncle that had a, a condo in winter park and we would go up there both in the summertime to explore, but also obviously in the wintertime, it's one of the best ski resorts in Colorado to enjoy the mountains. So had plenty of positive memories growing up in the wonderful state of Colorado. That's, that's so awesome. I know Colorado and, and skiing go hand to hand. So that makes a lot of sense. So I introduced you, you're in product management and marketing. But I know that that's more of a recent thing for you. Can you sort of describe your sort of background a bit for us? Sure. I mean, I've been with Johns Manville for 18 years. Prior to that, I was with a company called Hunter Douglas, which they make custom window coverings. And my career started there right out of college. And I grew at a marketing degree, communications degree. And so I really grew within... Hunter Douglas under a woman named Hillary Meyer. I would say she was one of my early on mentors mm. from a marketing and a product management standpoint. She had been a marketer her entire career, very creative, took me under her wing. And I worked there for six years and I met a gentleman. He had never worked for him, but I met him at Hunter Douglas, and he was recruited to come over to John's Manville. Mm -hmm. And he and my former mentor had had a good relationship. And I think he knew he couldn't get her to come over at the time. Mm. So he kind of recruited me. So that was my segue into John's Manville. And um, I started in the roofing division. I've always been in the roofing division since being at JM. And I started initially as a bituminous product manager at JM and then throughout the years had taken on different channel segment roles, strategic marketing roles. I've been a part of building new assets such as our TPO plant, the business case team that put that together for the first one, led the business case for the second one. So I've, I've got to see a lot of different 
aspects of the commercial roofing arena. And I most recently just came back to product management and marketing. Prior to that, I had done a three-year stint in sales, yeah, uh, which was exciting. <laughs> That's very interesting. So, <laughs> well, very interesting because I had, I don't I've never as as you would say in the sales world I'd never carried a bag, and I ended up leading a sales organization of over 130 people, wow. uh, five regional managers. But I think one of the bridges that got me to to that point was one of my marketing roles was leading our contractor loyalty program. Uh-huh. So I really got to know some of our key customers throughout the years, which really helped as a segue for me into sales. That's very interesting. So what, what were the early lessons you learned going into that? Like, because you had... Like you said, you had some transferable experience, but it was a new role for you. So what were some of the surprises you had when you, when you got there? Well, I think as a marketer or a product manager, those tend to be long-term strategic mm-hmm. roles, right? So you're thinking five years out. Mm-hmm. We certainly have immediate needs that need to be met that you're working on all the time. But within sales, it's get it done, get it done now, right? And solve a problem, provide a service, and it's immediate. And I, my very first job was in customer service. So I, I learned the value of being responsive yeah. and catering to the customer need. And that the customer should always be at the center of what you're doing because without them, it's hard for you to be in business. So I think my early on career helped build that foundation but not having actually having a sales role, it was an early lesson that you've got to jump on things quick and solve problems fast. And, but on the other side, I think my history in product management and marketing that, that really helped me succeed in our sales role is that we were lacking in some processes mm-hmm. and performance management. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was one of the skill sets that I, I could bring to the sales role. So initially, one of my very first priorities was to set up scorecards that Mm. hadn't existed the way they do today. So any Mm. one of our salespeople today can log on very easily and see exactly where they stand from a market share standpoint, daily sales standpoint, and a product mix standpoint and how they're performing with each of their customers. So we had those elements, but it wasn't really easy to get to if you were a salesperson. So that was a big push of mine because it's really mm-hmm. hard to understand where you want to go if you don't know where you are today. So mm-hmm. I think that marketing side of me helped bring some of that to the sales side. That makes sense. So is that scorecard system, is that something generated through operational stuff or is that something that they need to feed information into? How, how did that work? Most of our scorecard stuff is provided to them. Yeah. My concern with salespeople is we want them out talking to our customers yes. and solving problems and providing services, not sitting at their desk entering data <laughs> two days out of the week and they'll tell you the same thing. That's not why they got into sales. They don't want to be sitting at a desk. Yeah. So it was really important. You know, a lot of that information exists. It's just in a lot of different facets. Uh, and I would tell you, I couldn't have put that together without the support of, we have, we created a role at JM called a commercial ex- excellence leader. Oh yeah. And it's led by a woman named Angela Stevens. And without her support, 
in pulling from all these places that we can get important data and putting it all into one easy to read scorecard, it wouldn't have been possible. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Now, you just talked about processes and standardization. I mean, as part of, I think you have like sort of a internal team and rep mix. Do you standardize selling approach with everybody? Is that part of what you advocate or did? Or is it is a little bit more custom? I would say, I guess sales are like sports in my opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you take athletes, some, some have, they have mechanics that make them really successful that if yeah. someone else tried to mimic it, they would never be quite the quarterback of Peyton Manning was. They tried yeah. to mimic what he did. Yeah. I think within our sales organization, we have, I guess what society would say is a stereotypical salesperson with a lot of energy, very extroverted and go, yeah. go, go. And then we have folks that are really technically astute and more introverted but really understand how to solve customer problems. So I I don't ever want to change the personality of somebody who's successful Yeah, because they both work in our industry. Mm. So standardizing a sales process can somewhat be risky, I would say, if you try Mm -hmm. to put everybody in the same box. Yes. But I think understanding if someone's successful, don't mess with that secret magic that they have and that secret formulation. And I think what the scorecard does is it helps you really understand who's successful and who's not. And if someone's not successful, what are the processes that you can put in place with them specifically or the development plans that you can put in with them specifically to help them become more successful? Mm. And are the development plans in-house or do you send people out? How does that work? Uh, We have a mix. I think one of the big gaps is we didn't really have an onboarding process for salespeople. And I can imagine being a field salesperson in a territory by yourself, it might feel like you're an island on an island if you don't have someone giving you the basics. So that was kind of the second priority of mine when I took over the sales role is putting in a 101, John's Manville 101 kind of fundamental onboarding process. And that starts with setting up your computer to learning our products to... yeah so on and so on, learning our culture. Yeah. But it's it's not something you're going to learn in a week. It's a, so one of the things I tried to implement is kind of a iterative process. So they come in, they learn a few things. I might send them to, we have a boot camp where they can learn hands-on stuff and they learn a few things there. We have an internal kind of CEU class that we would give to architects. We put our internal people through that. So we kind of give them opportunities to learn in chunks versus just throwing them to the wolves on day one. Yeah, that's good. Now, I know for us, communication is a big part of what we do as a company. I'm just thinking of having 130 people that are doing different things. How do you stay connected so that people aren't stepping on each other's toes or, or miscommunicating? So we've been going through a huge process change right now, just organizationally of, of doing just that. We've had put the salespeople aside, just organizationally. You have customer service people, pricing yeah. people, tech services people, all touching the same order. Yeah. But they don't understand necessarily how they all connect with one another. Yeah. So we have recently kind of gone through an organizational change where we're co-locating these teams, these regional teams that are internal service teams. 
Oh yeah. Because I think just by sitting by each other, they're going to get some osmosis, right. And, and learning from one another, but I think they're going to get an appreciation for what the other person does. And it's hopefully going to help us be a better service provider to our customers. But the other thing is certainly technology. When, when you've grown to the size of the company that JM is now, it's hard to do all of that through emails, phone calls, and texts. So yeah. we have lever- we've chosen to leverage Salesforce.com yeah. as our CRM, but there's a lot of customization that goes behind that. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. It's an ongoing process, I guess, of continually improving. Yeah. So with your new role, tell, tell me about your new challenge with the product management. What do, you, what, do you, what do you see so far? Well, my new role is kind of new, but kind of old. So I, I had product management and marketing in a different yeah. kind of capacity. Now I have all the product management team, all of marketing, but then bolt on or add on to that. My responsibilities is <laughs> around our guarantee services area. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So that's where we warranty our roofs. And mm-hmm. so if someone has a problem with their roof, they're calling and saying, hey, I have an issue and I need some help. I have that group. And when we sell a guarantee on a roof, sometimes we own that guarantee up for 20 years. Yeah. And oftentimes what happens is you sell a guarantee, you sell a roof, and then you go on to the next project and you don't maintain a relationship with that owner over the 20 year period. And I think we're trying to understand how we can better serve that owner over that 20 year period versus giving them a guarantee and just walking off the job and going on to the next job. Right. And I think every man for 18 years since I've been at JM, that has been, I think an industry challenge, right? I think I've heard Mm -hmm. every manufacturer say they want to have a better relationship with the owner. I don't know if there's any silver bullet, but that's part of my new role is figuring out how JM can service that roof better over that next 20 years. Yeah, that makes sense. Because, I mean, you know, with the roofing industry, it's quite different than some of the other industries. The warranty plays such a big part in the selling and marketing process. You don't see yeah. that in a lot of the other industries. And I, I'm just... I was, it's just started that way and just kept going down that path. And I know a lot of people say that, you know, uh, we, we wish it wasn't this way because it kind of, you know, puts this sort of race uh, in that area. Um, but uh, yeah. I guess that's just the reality. Well, I think a lot of people wanted to sell it. It used to be common space maybe 40 years ago because I think the average person lived in their home for 10 years. Right. So yeah. for a sh- we don't make shingles, by the way. Jam yeah. doesn't. So you would sell a 40-year shingle and you, you knew that that owner was probably not going to be in that house 40 years from now. But And that was kind of a game that we played. But I think with commercial building owners and then with technology, there's just a new world of if you're going to sell a 20-year guarantee, you better be prepared to stick with that guarantee for the 20 years. And JM feels that way, right? We're mm-hmm. Berkshire Hathaway company. We're 160 plus years old, we want to be around for another 160 years plus, and we want to maintain relationships, not just sell a guarantee and a roof and walk on to the next one. Yeah, for sure. So you've been in the the marketing seat, you had that stint with sales, but you've been in the marketing seat for most of the time. What are, I mean, if people ask you, what are the sort of important lessons? It could have been early years, or it could be now that, that when you think about marketing, 
you should consider? What what comes to mind as some of the key things that you have to you have to pay attention to do a great job with with marketing? I think number one, you have to understand your customer, no matter what it is, right? Mm-hmm. And I worked for a company who had a technical genius <laughs> who came up and solved a problem. Yes. So during the energy crisis of the seventies. One of the biggest issues of energy loss was not only your walls, because walls weren't very insulated, not just at your roof, but at your windows. And yeah. most people thought of window coverings as a decoration. Yeah. And the gentleman who invented the honeycomb shade was, was really trying to tackle 20% of your energy loss going out the window, literally. And so there was a, a need and he had a technical solution to fit that need. I think often too many times we come up with a creative solution in our head that we think is cool, but we don't (laughs) necessarily validate it with our customer base. Yeah. And it goes nowhere. Right. And it's a tricky thing of finding being that innovator that you're going to, because somebody's not going to ask you for an iPhone 50 years ago because they don't, they don't know how to articulate that. Right. So it's, it's kind of finding that, innovative side of yourself, but also always validating it with the need of a marketplace or a customer. And I think sometimes we forget that. And it doesn't matter if it's marketing or product management or sales, right? If you don't put the customer at the center of it, you're creating something that that's not going to have value necessarily to the people you're trying to sell it to. So I think early on working for an innovative company like Hunter Douglas, I think mm-hmm. that really taught me early on that customers come first and it's voices the customer and it's putting CTQs around the customer and understanding that because without them, if, if our customers aren't thriving at JM, then we're, we're not going to be thriving as a company, as employees, as individuals. Yeah. So you put some, you said some industry terminology. But uh, from activity, activity-based things, so for someone that doesn't know those specific terms, like what sort of things are you recommending to get closer to the customer? Can you rephrase that? I'm not sure I understood the question. Sure, yeah. absolutely. So like talking to the customer, surveying them, what, do you, what are you saying? You, you oh. talked about voice of the customer and stuff like that, but for someone that doesn't know, like what, uh, yeah. what are the activities that you recommend it stay in touch with the customer? Well, I would say early on in my career, JM had got, we were purchased by Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway in 2001. And so when I first came to JM, there were certainly many seasoned employees, but there was just as many people like me who had no idea about the roofing industry. And so I leaned heavily on the internal folks for their industry knowledge and what they could bring But during that time, we did a a tremendous amount because on the marketing side, I would say we were probably more green than than maybe on the manufacturing side or some of the sales side. So we were doing surveys with quantitative surveys, qualitative surveys, trying to understand the market. We certainly belong to industry associations like Armand Spry, and they give us industry data that we analyze we buy reports, but I would say the number one thing in roofing and commercial roofing, it's a pretty small industry. Everybody knows mm. everybody and it's mm-hmm. just going out and talking to people and really understanding yeah. what makes them tick. And 
getting your, like in our case, getting our engineers access to the rooftop with some of these customers because the people I probably talk to are the principals of these companies and they're not necessarily up on the rooftop, but they certainly have their employees beating down the door saying, man, when I use this product, my productivity goes up and I just want the JM blah, this product, or they Mm. could as equally be saying, don't spec JM, don't make me use it because it makes my life really hard. And so Mm -hmm. it's really getting out and talking to those principals, but also giving our technical people access to the the folks that use our products every day and getting them up on the rooftop and just observing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So understanding the customer, I mean, where, where, in your opinion, where does some of these new sort of marketing technologies and tools come into place? For instance, social media. You know, social media is certainly very powerful. I think we're still trying to figure out how it translates into sales. I think it connects people. It gives an outlet to talk about what's new. And I think we're, from a social media, as a building products manufacturer, still trying to navigate the ROI on some of that kind of stuff. But for overall digital kind of communication, we're trying to just simplify. We're trying to put more content out there that is relatable. So whether it's product marketing kind of videos or down to Mm -hmm. putting in hands-on demo stuff, how to do a pipe boot, how to do a detail. We've always got new people coming in. Some of them may not be speaking English. So the more we can put out visually and video content has been a push for us. Mm. That makes sense. We've also simplified, I think, it was kind of an industry standard to say when anything was new, a bulletin would go out and we, (laughs) we were, something was new every day because JM has the broadest product offering out there. We have all six major membranes. We offer coatings and adhesives. We have boards, insulation boards, cover boards. Like we have a broad offering. So there's always something new going on. And we always had, product manager trying to communicate that. But sometimes when you over communicate, then you just get lost. So we simplified and created a, a site that was just called roofing, jamroofing.news for us. Uh-huh. And it houses a whole bunch of content, but it's, it's just roofing related for JM because JM is a part of a bigger company. We're one of three divisions. Yeah. And this, this site is specific to roofing. And we put out a communication once a month that says, hey, this is all the things that's new for JM and you can find current content at this site. But just really trying to simplify our communications. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, you've been involved in the roofing industry a very long time. What sort of trends do you kind of see coming up industry-wide? I think the biggest trend has been labor shortages. So, you know, I'm really involved in NRCA, the Alliance and organizations like that. I listen to our customers all the time and they're just, they're running out of people to put roofs on. And so trying to figure out that magic formula of, of how do you combat that? Cause we're competing with concrete companies and bricklayers and framers, right? We plumbers, Mm-hmm. electricians. So I think the trends, we're trying to elevate the roofing industry, excite people to want to enter it. 
and then simplify product offerings so they're not so arduous to put on and backbreaking and making it easier to install a roof so people want to come into the industry. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I think when I say people, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of national women at roofing and that's a big area of the, of the employee sector that we haven't tapped that much in our industry. JM has, I know we employ about 22% female Mm -hmm. as a building products company. I just attended the national women in roofing day beacon uh, reported that they when they initially did their survey, they had 7% of their employees as women. And in just a year, they've moved it up to 11%. Oh, that's great. Uh, so we're seeing progress there, but they're still pretty small numbers and there's some opportunity to bring females into the industry as well. Yeah. And you think it's just education that sort of will do it or are there other things that need to happen to sort of bring the number up? I think education. I don't think people know that, what the opportunities are. Simplifying the way products go down, I think. Looking at how, like Colorado State University has a boot camp that they do in the summertime and they bring high school students in and teach them hands-on about building products, but then they also are teaching them about drafting and designing and architecture. So they're giving them all the facets, right? So I think it's exposure. Yeah for folks and understanding what our industry is all about. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, I mean, in in this whole sort of um, period you've been with these uh, companies, when do you think you experienced the most personal growth? I've had some people that have taken shots on me. They've given me jobs that I didn't. Hmm. I don't think any job I aspired to have, I just would <laughs> come to work and work. <laughs> you you know, I, yes. I never sat out and said, I never thought I was that I'm going to be the director of this, or I, I want to be a general manager of this, or I'm going to be the CEO of this company. I just, I just worked hard. Right. And, you know, I, and I always hoped that I worked for a company that would recognize that. And if it was time for me to move up in the organization, that's, that's what would happen. And so I've been fortunate to have people take chances on me and give me a responsibility that I didn't think initially I could handle. And the, the sales job was, was one of them. It was a big jump for me because I, yeah. I knew the perception from people outside and mm. not being insecure about that. But I also knew my own self perception, right, and overcoming that. But I'm also very competitive. If you ever get to know me, I played <laughs> sports throughout college, and it's hard for me to lose. So, like, I'm up for the challenge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I would tell you those moments were my biggest growth moments when someone. She said, Hey, I believe in you. You can take this on. And you didn't, I didn't necessarily believe as much in myself. And I was given that opportunity. And I think a much better business professional now, having gone through three years of sales than I would have been before, even though I, I didn't have a strong sense of customer relationships and what customers needed. I think this helped me even more. Yeah, that's very cool. I love that story. Now, obviously, you're running a big team. You're very busy. What are some of the top habits or routines that keep you sort of in tune and, and successful? Waking up at three in the morning because you're worried about it. <laughs> just kidding. No, like I, it's just the way I, I organize myself. I'm a very task oriented person. Mm-hmm. 
is one thing, right? So I have my list, my ongoing list all the time. And that just keeps me focused on what I need to accomplish. But the other habit I would say is more of a team habit. I think I'm really focused on inclusion. People that work with me will say, I really want to make sure I have a team that understands what everybody else is doing. Because Mm -hmm. I think when you get the bigger picture, you're a more effective team member. So I am big on our weekly, like I have weekly team meetings. Mm -hmm. And even though it sometimes feels like you're reporting out on your individual product or project that you're working on, hopefully folks that are in that same room are gleaning some insight out of that and how it might affect them or how they can learn from it. So I think that's important that you just stay connected to your team members. And I do that through our weekly team meetings. I also need to recharge, right? So being at home with my family is important. Spending time, I have have no kids, but I have animals. So I kind of recharge by spending time with them and my husband and making sure we we take that family time to do, do things to recharge together before jumping into the crazy travel schedules that we have and that kind of stuff. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Now, you mentioned team. I know this is a big area, but I, I'm just, you just sort of piqued my interest. How do, you, how do you develop great teams? Because you, you talked about inclusion, but world-class teams. I think you have to appreciate the team's dynamic. So, mm-hmm. for example, I have, product, I have five or six product managers and they, they could easily get into their, like, I manage this product line and I'm only worried about this product line, but like product managers tend to come from different aspects of the organization, right? Because they're kind of a little version of a general manager of their product line. Mm -hmm. So some might have finance expertise. Some might have operations expertise. Some might have marketing expertise, but they all tend to come from a different background. And for me, it's not only recruiting for the position that's open, but also can they fit a broader skill set that might be missing of the overall team? Mm-hmm. And I think that's important to have diversity within your team, not, not, you know, diversity in knowledge, diversity across the board. Diversity comes in very, very many different forms. Right. And mm-hmm. I think it's important to have diverse perspectives and I think it's important also to listen to where what your team's trying to tell you sometimes, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes that's hard not to get <laughs> defensive, but I think having people feel like they're a part of the solution versus just being assigned tasks, mm-hmm. I think makes all the difference in, in, in a team dynamic. Yeah. Well, just tapping into the, their sort of expertise to see if uh, they can come up with the stuff to to add value. So that makes a lot of sense. So do you, like you said, listening, so you have that, do you, do you rely on any assessment tools to give you better insight into your team? Or is that just sort of something you do yourself personally? Throughout the years, I've done different things. I think one of the most effective things that I've done, and I probably should revisit this, is we have a a course at JM called Manager as a Coach. Mm -hmm. And what I think the hardest things is for you to get asked for feedback. It's not hard for me. I, I, I want to hear what people think and where I need to improve. And so one of the 
when I had initially gone through that course, I had, I had to do a self-assessment. I gave that self-assessment out to all of my team mm. and said, I want you to assess me and you can turn it into me anonymously. I don't need to know who it was, <laughs> but I think that just helped them understand that I was trying to get better at what I was doing, but also helped me understand where my deficiencies were. That's awesome. That's very powerful. Now, is there anything that I should have asked you, but didn't? Hmm. I don't know. I don't think so. I thought it was a good chat. Well, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you shared a lot of useful information. I'm sure everyone got a lot out of it. Well, thank you for your time. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. Also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.